which disease was first recognized in children and only at the turn of the century gained recognition among adult patients as an important and potentially fatal disease involving a cytokine storm? The answer to this question is hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, HLH. When first reported in 1952, it was referred to as familial hemophagocytic reticulosis and regarded as an immune dysregulatory disorder of childhood. It was only many years later that HLH was described as both a familial disorder and a sporadic one that can arise with infections, malignancies, and rheumatologic disorders. Irrespective of the underlying etiology, HLH leads to activated lymphocytes and macrophages that attack the body. Without treatment, it can be fatal in many patients. Today, our patient has HLH, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled HLH, The Deadly Storm. Time for our minute physiology. HLH is characterized by the cyclical stimulation of lymphocytes and histiocytes that leads to hypercytokinemia, which can in turn further stimulate lymphocytes and histiocytes. Despite being first recognized among children, HLH occurs across all age groups and in the context of many underlying conditions, with EBV being the most frequently associated infection with secondary HLH. For both primary and secondary HLH, studying its pathogenesis is key to understanding its presentation. Doing so will help us remember the components of the H-score, a tool that we will discuss later in this episode to help make this often difficult diagnosis. Defective cytotoxic function and failure of downregulation of the immune response are the driving forces behind genetic HLH. In immunocompetent individuals, NK cells and cytotoxic T lymphocytes kill infected cells in a perforin-dependent pathway. Cytotoxic cells are equipped with secretory lysozymes that contain perforin and granzymes. Patients with genetic HLH, however, have mutations that result in reduced or absent perforin. Consequently, their cytotoxic cells are unable to kill and eliminate infected antigen-presenting cells. Perforin also plays a critical role in the contraction of the immune system after successful elimination of a trigger. Thus, failure to kill antigen-presenting cells not only impedes the reduction of the viral load, but also leads to continuous stimulation of immune cells. In acquired HLH, the mechanisms are similar, but are quite diverse and may act in combination. Some patients with acquired HLH are immunosuppressed, which may result in inability to cope with an infectious trigger, thus leading to HLH. In patients with rheumatic diseases, non-antigen-specific stimulation of innate immunity may be the trigger for HLH. Other mechanisms may involve single nucleotide polymorphisms in genes important to the immune response and imbalance between infected cells and immune effector cells. Alright, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach to working up HLH. The diagnosis of HLH relies on a combination of clinical, laboratory, and imaging findings. You should be suspicious for HLH in an adult with fever and hepatosplenomegaly, as well as unexplained cytopenias, elevated liver enzymes, or inflammatory central nervous system findings. Other predisposing factors include prior HLH-like episodes, a family history of HLH, an underlying condition known to trigger HLH, or a known genetic disorder associated with HLH. Patients with HLH are often acutely ill with multi-organ system involvement. Accordingly, your first step should be assess whether the patient is stable or not. What is their GCS? Are their ABCs stable? 
What are their vitals? If your patient is stable, proceed with a thorough assessment. The HLH 2004 criteria can be a helpful way to classify patients that likely have HLH, but it is important to note that these criteria were designed for research purposes and have not been validated in adult patients. Nonetheless, the criteria is positive if patients meet five of the following eight items. One, fever. Two, splenomegaly. Three, cytopenia in two or more cell lines, hemoglobin less than 100, platelets less than 100, ANC less than 1. Four, hypertriglyceridemia and or hypofibrinogenemia, fasting triglycerides greater than or equal to 3 millimoles per liter, fibrinogen less than or equal to 1.5 grams per liter. Five, hemophagocytosis in the bone marrow, spleen, or lymph nodes. Six, hyperferritinemia greater than or equal to 500 milligrams per liter. 7. High levels of SIL2R greater than or equal to 2400 units per milliliter. And 8. Low or absent natural killer cell activity. The H-score was developed to estimate the probability of HLH. This tool assigns points for immunosuppression, fever, organomegaly, levels of triglycerides, ferritin, alanine aminotransferase, and fibrinogen, degree of cytopenias, and presence of hemophagocytosis on the bone marrow aspirate. An H-score of 250 or more confers a 99% probability of HLH, whereas a score of 90 or less confers a less than 1% probability of HLH. It is important to note that HLH can be difficult to diagnose and may be mistaken for other conditions. Of note, macrophage activation system, MAS, is often discussed interchangeably with HLH, but MAS should be conceptualized as a specific form of HLH associated with a rheumatologic disease. When thinking of HLH, the differential diagnosis may also include sepsis, liver disease or failure, multiple organ dysfunction syndrome, encephalitis, autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome, drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms, DRESS, microangiopathic hemolytic anemias, and transfusion-associated graft-versus-host disease. Time for the workup. You'll want to order the following laboratory tests to identify signs of infection, organ injury, and complications associated with HLH. CBC with differential, coagulation studies including PT, APTT, fibrinogen, and D-dimer, liver enzymes and function tests including ALT, AST, GGT, total bilirubin and albumin, as well as LDH, serum fasting triglycerides, and ferritin. More specialized immunologic lab testing, such as for soluble IL-2 receptor alpha, NK cell function or degranulation, flow cytometry, immunoassay for serum CXCL9, immunoglobulin levels, and lymphocyte subsets can be considered if there is diagnostic uncertainty. If available, you should discuss with an expert, for example a hematologist, before ordering. Based on the symptoms and signs of organ involvement and your degree of suspicion, you should consider these additional tests as well. 1. Blood and urine cultures, and viral titers and PCR testing, especially Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus, and adenovirus. It is critical to follow the levels of any identified viruses throughout treatment with the appropriate antiviral therapy. 2. A bone marrow biopsy and aspirate should be performed to evaluate the cause of cytopenias and or to confirm hemophagocytosis. It is important to note that hemophagocytosis is not required for diagnosis and can actually be seen in other conditions as well. 3. An ECG, a chest x-ray, and an echocardiogram to evaluate for heart and lung involvement. 4. A lumbar puncture should be performed and sent for cultures and viral testing if the patient presents with neurologic symptoms. 
Not surprisingly, CSF is abnormal in over half the patients with HLH, with findings of cellular pleocytosis, elevated protein, and rarely hemophagocytosis. 5. A brain MRI, with and without contrast, unless contrast is contraindicated, may demonstrate parameningeal infiltrations, subdural effusions, and or necrosis. Six, CT scans of the head, neck, chest, abdomen, and pelvis, or a PET scan, should be considered to evaluate for occult malignancy. Seven, abdominal ultrasound should be considered if the physical examination for splenomegaly is inconclusive. Lastly, genetic testing can be considered in all patients who meet the diagnostic criteria for HLH and in those with a high likelihood of HLH based on the initial evaluation. Now on to treatment. Not surprisingly, the management of HLH cannot be captured by a one-size-fits-all approach. If your patient is clinically stable and their presentation has a known trigger that led to HLH, they may respond to treatment of the underlying condition alone. For unstable patients, however, the mainstay of treatment consists of corticosteroids with or without the addition of IVIG. Among patients who are acutely ill or clinically deteriorating, HLH-specific therapy usually follows the HLH-94 protocol or involves enrollment in a clinical trial. Therapy based on the HLH-94 protocol consists of eight weeks of induction therapy with atopicide and dexamethasone, with intrathecal methotrexate and hydrocortisone indicated for CNS involvement. You must remember that patients with HLH require constant attention to signs of organ dysfunction. Supportive care may include appropriate transfusions, prevention and treatment of bleeding, and prevention and treatment of opportunistic infections. In addition, blood pressure control is critical to minimize the risk of posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, PRESS. Patients with HLH are at considerable risk of developing PRESS, so be alert to the development of headache, altered consciousness, visual disturbances, and or seizures. The response to initial therapy is a major factor in determining the need for additional therapy, especially in patients with underlying malignancy. Response to induction therapy is monitored by assessing the patient clinically and with many of the laboratory tests that were used to make the initial diagnosis of HLH. Let's finish with our medicine minute. Currently, the interferon-gamma-blocking antibody Gamafant, amipalumab, is the only FDA-approved treatment for primary HLH in patients with refractory, recurrent, or progressive disease, or with intolerance to conventional therapy. In this context, the amipalumab in children with primary HLH trial, published in 2020 in the New England Journal of Medicine, demonstrated the safety and efficacy of this drug, co-administered with dexamethasone for an eight-week treatment period in 26 pediatric patients with HLH, the majority of whom had already completed conventional therapy before enrollment. They were followed until one year post-last dose of amipalumab, or one year post-allogenic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. At the last observation, more than 70% of the patients were alive, and more than 60% of them had achieved a response to the amipalumab infusion. Treatment was discontinued in one patient because of disseminated histoplasmosis, but otherwise, amipalumab was not associated with any organ toxicity. Based on this study's findings, amipalumab is the only FDA-approved drug for HLH, and specifically for primary HLH. Further work is still needed to explore treatment options for secondary HLH. That's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled HLH, The Deadly Storm. 
This episode was written by Dr. Dalton Woodrum, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Zachary Lederman, hematologist, and Dr. Jillian Spiegel, internal medicine. This episode was recorded and produced by Leah Karianopoulos. The Internet Works series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos. Theme music production by Lakshmi Santamoa. As always, don't forget to check out www.theinternetwork.com for associated resources and infographics. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.